It's good to be back in this pulpit once again. I very much appreciate the vigor of your singing, how you obviously believe the words that you're singing in praise of God. This, this is encouraging to me as a Presbyterian minister visiting a Bible, not a Bible Presbyterian, but a Baptist church. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be here and make new acquaintances and new friends in the Lord. Let's open with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's Day, which has been set aside for your glory, for your worship. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can gather as a body in Christ, lift up our voices in praise, pray to you, and hear your word in which we rejoice. And Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things of you and your kingdom as we study together today in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing to study, as we have been the last two nights, the idea of biblical prophecy regarding the Christian's hope in this world, the world in which you live now, the hope for the future which you face and which your children and your grandchildren will go out into. Technically, we are studying post-millennialism, as it's called, and I've been developing the post-millennial hope from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And now I want us to focus on a text in the New Testament that's a very famous, beloved passage, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It is obviously well known, but I fear it's little understood. It is much loved, but unfortunately poorly implemented. And this hurts the Christian's own personal spiritual growth as well as the church's mission in the world. We need to understand, hold to heart the Great Commission and pursue the tasks therein given to us by Christ. Christians absolutely need a full-orbed Christian worldview rooted in Scripture. And the Great Commission is the chief cornerstone for the biblical worldview for the Christian calling in the world today. We have a world and life view that is based on the Great Commission and all that it entails for us, as we will be seeing this morning together. And only, I believe, only postmillennialism truly understands the greatness of the Great Commission. There's much more here in this text than sometimes we realize as I talk to fellow Christians about this issue. The Great Commission is a fitting climax and goal to the book of Matthew, to Matthew's gospel that he has given to us by God's inspiration. Matthew is an artist with words, and his gospel is a great masterpiece that he has produced under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his gospel has a beautiful structure presenting a glorious message which ends up with the Great Commission. His main point in the whole gospel is to present Christ as king. And I want to see how that's so as we look through the uh, quick survey of Matthew here by way of introduction into our text this morning. His main point is directly relevant to the post-millennial hope regarding Christ's kingship. We believe that the driving heartbeat of Matthew and of the scriptures itself is that Christ is king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And as the king, he has already established his kingdom. We spoke about that in the two preceding nights before this day. And he has established his kingdom. We're not awaiting another hundred or thousand years for his kingdom to be established. 
And Matthew presents the Messiah King to the Jews in a remarkable flowing context as it unfolds the nature of Christ's kingship. And I want to quickly trace the basic flow, just skipping from text to text, just to show you the high points of Matthew as we uh, develop this theme of, his kings- of Christ's kingship. Because this is very relevant to the Great Commission, which I will be preaching on here in a moment. Because the Great Commission is the goal of Matthew. It is the very last words of Matthew. So it's obvious that Matthew's been driving to that point. And everything he is saying prior to the Great Commission has been feeding in to what what it is all about. Well, the very first verse of Matthew is its heading. It says, it is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That son of David is a reference to Christ's kingship. He is indeed the son of David who God established as a forerunner to Christ. And the clear focus of the genealogy is on his kingship as his genealogy is traced to and circles around the uh, Davidic kingship itself. And then in chapter 2 we have the Gentiles coming and the three Magi uh, as they come to Jerusalem. And they come for what purpose? To worship the king of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 2, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, comes on the scene And he preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preaches with fiery judgment to the people regarding the coming of the kingdom of God. Then in chapter 4, Satan comes to tempt Christ. To tell Christ that he will give him the kingdoms of the world if he would but fall down and worship him. And so this notion of the kingdoms of the world comes into play here as well. And in chapter 4, verse 17, Christ begins his ministry as has been introduced already by John the Baptist. You know, it hurts a Presbyterian to say that, but John the Baptist. (laughs) He begins his ministry like John the Baptist did by declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 16, Christ teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 12, 28. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice it has come. And we can answer that if-then question. If he casts out demons by the Spirit of God, which he did, then therefore the kingdom of God has come. Then in Matthew 13, we have the kingdom parables that provide for us the nature and expectation of the kingdom. Regarding its growth in the world, it's being planted as a seed, its growth in the world to a place of dominance, like the mustard seed particularly in the leaven. Matthew 16, 19, uh, Christ talks to Peter and says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I have established the uh, the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you the keys so that you can let into the kingdom those who believe. Matthew 21, 5, Christ is entering Jerusalem as the king, and the people cry out, uh, quoting Zechariah 9, 9, calling him the son of David. The gospel started off with him being the son of David. Now he comes toward the cross into Jerusalem, and they cry out to him from Zechariah 9, 9, declaring he is the son of David, therefore the king. In Matthew 25, 31, he is presented as a king that comes and judges the nations. And his faithful are promised that they will inherit an eternal kingdom. In Matthew 27, verses 11 and 29, Christ is taunted on the cross as the king. Matthew 27, 37, 
The marker put on the cross says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then in Matthew 28, as the gospel draws to a close, it doesn't go to the ascension like Luke does. It stops and declares the Great Commission, where he is declared to be a king with all authority in heaven and on earth. Now this morning, my outline of the Great Commission is going to be based on the structure of the commission itself. Three of the points you'll recognize right quickly, and the other is more or less hidden in the way it's translated. But I'm going to be focusing on the four alls, the four times the word all appears in, the, in this brief, powerful text. The Great Commission reads, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you, literally, all the days until the end of the age. So let's begin. First, the claiming of all authority. By the way, I I hope you have your outlines that are available back there. The claiming of all authority. The first all in the Great Commission is in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me. Now, to properly grasp the dramatic significance of this, we must understand, capital A, the Great Commission's historical setting. The Great Commission was not given until after the resurrection of Christ, and necessarily so. But why? Why does he await until after he's been crucified, buried, and risen from the dead? What is the significance of the timing here? Before the resurrection, we hear Christ saying, I can do nothing of myself. John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. And he says that in John 5, 19, 5, 30, 8, 28, 12, 49, and 14, 10. It's a relentless heart drumbeat throughout the uh, uh, ministry of Christ until you get to the Great Commission. In Matthew 26, 39, in fact, he prays, Not my will, but thy will be done, Father in heaven. But now, we hear something dramatically different. Now he has come forth from the grave, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ's earthly exaltation follows his earthly humiliation where he dwelled in the dust of the earth and he hungered and thirsted and endured the assaults and insults of men. But now he's stepped into his exalted kingship, the fruit of his historical servitude. In Luke 24, 46, it says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? He had to suffer first so that he could enter into his glory. He suffered for you and for me and for his people throughout history so that we might enjoy and rejoice in his glory. In Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There it is, the first stage. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, I mean, because he did that, for this reason also, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, humbled first and then exalted because of his completed work. 1 Peter 1.11, he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. 
Humility first and then exaltation later. And the significance of the Great Commission, I feel, has been not greatly appreciated by the evangelical community. We sing songs such as, There's no one like the lowly Jesus. But how can you talk of the lowly Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth? He has that authority now. And now notice, the authority is given to Christ. Now here the word given is an aorist passive verb. That is, it's a past tense verb. God gave it to him. Not is giving it to him or will give it to him. God has given it to him at a past point. And that point is the resurrection. Matthew 28 verse 1 opens with the resurrection. And now at the end of Matthew 28, he declares he has all authority. This kingly investiture by God with authority is at the resurrection. And this is a frequent theme of the New Testament. Acts 2 verses 30 and 31 says, Because David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Then in verse 36, he cites Psalm 110.1, the most quoted Old Testament scripture appearing in the New Testament. Uh, Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's blaming Israel for his crucifixion because they said we have no king but Caesar. Away with him. Crucify him. But Romans 1.4 says he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Raising him up, he seated him at his own right hand. Christians, timing is important for understanding the Great Commission. Just as it was important for understanding uh, Isaiah's message, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be raised above all the mountains. Just as it was important for Jesus' prophetic statement, now is the judgment of the world. Now uh, the Son of Man should be glorified. Timing is important. God has a plan. It's working out and developing historically, moving along in chronological fashion. And He moves from a state of humiliation, wherein He came into this world, born of a virgin, suffered, and then also died to a state of exaltation that he has taken the first step into and soon he'll be ascended to the throne of God then he'll be seated at the right hand of God. And so he moves from a state of humiliation to exaltation and that's important for understanding the Great Commission as we develop this theme. Now notice the Great Commission's unlimited authority. Notice he says all authority has been given to me. The word all here is used in a distributive sense. It means all kinds of authority. Any kind of authority that you can think of. Authority in every realm of endeavor. In heaven, which speaks of its transcendent source above all other forms of authority. And on earth, which speaks of its temporal impact in history. All areas of life are under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ's authority is not just over the individual, not just over the family, not just over the church, but over all, according to His own word. 
Christ has all authority over religion, education, science, economics, business, politics, law, medicine, philosophy, the arts. All areas of life are subsumed under the authority of Jesus Christ. All authority, therefore, in heaven and on earth. Remember Psalm 24, 1, that great Old Testament passage. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. That psalm and that sentiment uh, presented several times in Scripture. Exodus 9, 29, 19:5, Leviticus 25, 23, and some other texts that I hope I have there in your notes. The Great Commission says that Christ is Lord of every sphere of life and existence. As in Psalm 24, 1 again, He is over the earth and all that it contains. Over the whole world and everything in it. But why does Christ command? But excuse me. What does Christ command on the basis of all authority that He has been invested with? What are the implications of His having this all authority? He declares His kingly authority for empowering His kingdom program. He's telling the disciples now, "I have all authority." Here's what you must do under my authority and my direction. And this leads us to the second all in the Great Commission. The discipling of all the nations. Matthew 28, 9 commands, Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now here's where we must look at the passage carefully. And I think sometimes in evangelical Bible-believing circles, it's not looked at carefully enough. Let's notice in the first place the significance of the nations. It's important that we understand the implications of of this carefully chosen term, nations. The word nations is in the Greek the word ethnos, where we get our word ethnic. And we must note, Jesus does not say, go make disciples of all men, though he could well have said that. He would have used the word anthropoi in that case, where we get our word anthropology from. But he does not say, go make disciples of all men, as if it's individualistic, and God's only concerned for people here, there, and yon. He does not say, go make disciples of all the kingdoms of the earth, or he would have used the word basileus, as if it were a political kingdom that he were establishing, that he was establishing. Rather, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Well, what does the word nations signify here in making this distinction between individual men and political entities? What is the concept? What is the true meaning of this notion of ethnos, nations? Well, the word ethnos, the Greek word, is based on an earlier word, ethos, which we call ethos today. The nations is an interesting term. It's it's rooted in the idea of an ethos, which is the beliefs, the customs, and the practices of an individual or of a society. In this case, we're talking about uh, the uh, society. Therefore, ethnos, go make disciples of the ethnos, is the human race in all of its cultural endeavors and activities. God has come and through Jesus Christ is going to win the world in all of its aspects, all of its cultural relations and activities to himself. 
He's, going, he's calling on his disciples, and through them he's calling on you to go in the world and to affect social relationships and all of its manifold callings of life under his authority. The Great Commission begins with the individual, but it does not stop there. It begins with the individual and works out from there. It works out into all of life and culture. This is the kind of thing Paul meant in Philippians 2, chapter 12 and 13, uh, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation, but the salvation that you have, work it out into your life, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The salvation in your heart is not to remain there in the darkness of your heart. It's to be worked out in the light of your life. In every cultural endeavor, whatever you engage in in life. Christianity is not a part-time religion. It's a holistic religion. The Great Commission is effectively the new creation counterpart to the original creation mandate. Which was called the cultural mandate. Remember, God created man in the beginning to exercise dominion. We dealt with this Friday night as we opened the series. Genesis 1.26, we read, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man to rule in his world, in God's world. He is to rule over all creational realms because he is reflecting God. God has created those realms and man, his image, is to reflect him by exercising rule in those areas. Redemptive rule through redemptive power. The Great Commission seeks the saving of the whole man for service to God in the whole world, in the whole of life. God saves man in every relationship, every calling, every cultural endeavor. That is the goal of the Great Commission. Now, as we flesh this out a little further, notice now the salvation of the world. We've been talking about the nations, the ethnos, based on the ethos. But now let's look at something else. Be careful and don't say, too often, Christ is my personal Savior as if he were an idol you could put in your pocket and haul with you through life. Oh, I've got my personal Savior right here with me. I'm going to haul him around with me. That's what the ancient world did. In fact, there was an ancient stone found uh, that had on it these words, idols, don't leave home without them. A bad joke, but I'll come back with a better one later. (laughs) Yes, Christ saves us as individuals to be sure. Christ loves me and I'm grateful and praise God for that. But Christ is not sparingly parceled out into the world. He seeks all nations and all the cultural endeavors of life. Because the scripture teaches that Christ is the Savior of the world. This is not talking of salvific universalism. There is a hell. There are people there. Not every person in history will be saved. Not every person at the very height of the progress of the gospel will be saved. Just the dominant majority will become Christians. But Christ is the Savior of the world. Now the word world is the Greek word cosmos. And in Greek, it's the opposite of chaos. 
We know what chaos is. Our lives are full of that. Well, cosmos is the opposite. Instead of chaos, it's order. And the idea is the cosmos, the world, is a system of men and things. The organized, orderly system of this world in which we live. God is not talking about stray individuals here and there. Random people. A little here, a little there. No, he's looking at the world as a system as the goal and the target of his saving work. Now let's notice how this is so. John the Baptist, John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? The world. John 3.17, Jesus says, God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. 1 John 2.2, 2, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Romans 11.15, he is reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Notice these terms, taking away sin, propitiation, reconciling. These are powerful redemptive terms. God has created this world and he's going to redeem this world. He is in fact in process now of redeeming that world through Jesus Christ by means of the Great Commission through the work of his people in this world. The Great Commission commands, disciple all the nations. It doesn't suggest it. He says, go and disciple all the nations. Christ expects it. How can he expect such? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Christians, I believe, in the post-millennial worldview, uh, declares that one day, this world in which we live will be God's world with, filled with saved people, people who will be a dominant in the affairs of the world. Christianity will be the rule rather than the exception to the rule. The world will be saved, propitiated, and reconciled back to God in all areas of our life, all the cosmos, all the cultural endeavors of life. Christ's redemption is for the world as a system of men and things. It's not for one here and one there, maybe a dozen over there, people. No, it's for the wholeness of this world. God created this world to bring himself glory, as we noted in our opening message. Now, we're not talking about an each and every universalism. Just like you can say in any particular church, it's a Christian church, but you know there might be one or two in there that are not truly born again. That doesn't mean that church is not a Christian church. Likewise, there are tares that remain in the world until the end. But it's a wheat field that is uh, at the end of this world, not a tear field. I'll deal with that in the next message, though. The Great Commission expects Christian men living Christian lives in a Christianized world. The Great Commission will be fruitful for Christ's commands baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Go in all the world, make disciples of the nations, and do what to them? Baptize them. That is the sign of salvation. I know I'm a Presbyterian and say, say that and you probably wonder how. That's another message. <laughs> Baptism is a sign of salvation. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptize who? The nations. 
You see, the expectation is that the nations as such will be brought into the kingdom of God and this whole world will be Christianized. Therefore, disciple them, seeking their baptism, applying the name of the triune God, showing his ownership over the nations. Well, then notice also the foundation in the Old Testament. The Great Commission reasserts the Old Testament prophetic expectations, several of which we noted last night, or in the previous night, we carefully focused on Isaiah 2 previously. I want us to consider one other Old Testament passage. Now, I was afraid our singing this morning and the opening of the service was going to steal my thunder here, but he stopped short of taking it all away from me. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. I'm going to look at one passage, Psalm 2. Where is that rascal dealing with Psalm 2? He's back there somewhere. Psalm 2. Now, I want us to properly understand Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, as parallel to and supporting of the Great Commission. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8 says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I will surely do this, he says. Well, both passages link the universal dominion of God's Son with His resurrection. Psalm 2.7 says, You are my Son, this day I have begotten you. He's not talking about the birth of Christ. He's talking about Him being born out of death. Because Acts 13.33, Paul preaches, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The being begotten in Psalm 2 is the resurrection of Christ being begotten from the dead. According to Paul, Christ's resurrection is his begetting. Then in Psalm 2.8, based on that begetting from the dead, based on that resurrection, Psalm 2.8 says... I've given the nations to you as an inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Just like the Great Commission. He's resurrected, all authority is given to him, and now he says to his people, make disciples of all the nations. The psalm is the backdrop to this. It's abundantly clear that the Old Testament expects and Christ commands the discipling of the nations. This is why Christ is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and why He's given a name above every name that is named in earth. Well, thirdly, the third all, the teaching of all things. The third all here says, Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Before we can get into the actual point, we've got to consider a thing or two. Notice the Great Commission's misreading. Again, as I opened, I said, I don't believe the Great Commission is properly understood, and I believe it is poorly implemented, partly due to its misreading. So we need to be careful. We must read the Great Commission uh, correctly, because it's so easy to misread it. I want to give a few samples of the misreading of the Great Commission. Now, I'm going to read this, these. They're going to sound fine. You're going to say, what's the problem with that? Well, see if you can detect a subtle er error in the light of what we've been teaching in this conference. Charles Feinberg, a strong Christian, of, uh, he died before this millennium began, but he died at, toward the end of the 20th century. He wrote of Matthew 28, 
Nothing could be plainer in the New Testament than that in the age of grace, God uses the church and members of the body of Christ to witness throughout the earth. He's talking about the Great Commission. And we're to witness throughout the earth. No. I'm going to show you why in a minute. Anthony Hokema. He talks of the Great Commission. He says, here we are to provide a testimony that calls for decision. No, that's not really getting to the heart of the matter. J. Dwight Pentecost, talking of the Great Commission. We are to proclaim a message to the ends of the earth. No, that doesn't fully establish what the Great Commission is about. Certainly, each of these sentiments is true. Many Bible verses do call us to such. Acts 1.8, for instance, says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So, yes, we are to be witnesses. Matthew 24.14, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a testimony. Yes, the gospel is to be preached. But that's not what the Great Commission is saying here. The Great Commission is saying more than be a witness, more than preach the gospel. Christ's terminology does not allow for that sort of reduction. It's not just to present and to declare the news, but to accomplish it. Notice this. My next point. The Great Commission's rereading. Okay, we've looked at the misreading, and probably you're thinking, well, that wasn't too bad a misreading. What's the problem? But now we're going to look at it and reread it in terms of the language here. The Great Commission does not command a mere witness, or it would have used the Greek word martyreo for witness. Martyreo is the Greek word that's the backdrop for martyrs. It does not simply mean to preach, or it would have used the Greek word caruso. Rather, it uses the word disciple all the nations by teaching them to observe all things. Christ commands, teach them to observe all things that I have taught you. Train them to observe, to keep, to live out all the teachings I have given you. Not just to declare to them, but teaching them, instructing them to keep all the things I have told you. But what did Christ teach? He did not just simply teach on being saved by an individual, as an individual. Else the gospel record would have been much shorter. You wouldn't need 28 chapters to tell people that they must be saved. Something more is going on there. Thank goodness salvation is going on there. It's a foundation, but it it moves out beyond that. Rather, Christ is affirming the whole law of God and its application to the whole of life. In Matthew 5, 17 through 19, we read, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That is, to fill up to its full measure. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And God's law, as you well know if you read the Old Testament, is not limited to personal salvation. It, too, applies to all of life. It structures a righteous society, a godly culture, a just legal system. Nor is Christ's coming limited to His own words spoken on earth. In John 16, verses 12 and 13, we read, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So then, all that the apostles teach are an extension of what Christ taught in his own earthly ministry. They continue his teaching. Their mission is an extension of his. They are apostles, men sent on a commission. They have been commissioned by Christ. And the apostles do not limit their teaching only to the gospel gospel of salvation. Or else the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, would be much shorter. In Matthew 5.17, Christ affirms the law of God. Paul does the same thing in Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Like Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest jot or tittle shall fail. Like God's law, the New Testament teaches a broad worldview approach to all of life. I'm just going to give a few random samples here. Marriage and divorce is dealt with in Matthew 5.27. Family relations, Ephesians 5.22. The rich man's duty to the poor, Matthew 25.31 and following. The employer and employee relationships, Ephesians 6.5 and following. Honest wages, Luke 10.7. Free market capitalism, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 15. Private property rights, Acts 5.4. Godly citizenship and the proper function of the state, uh, Matthew twenty two twenty one, The family is the primary welfare agency, 1 Timothy 5, 8. The proper use of money, Matthew 15, 14 and following. Dan- the danger of debt, Romans 13, 8. The morality of investment, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. The obligation to leave an inheritance to your children, 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Personal uh, penal restraints of of, uh, criminals, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. On and on we could go. The point being, the gospel is not just simply about saving the individual, but saving the individual and then preparing him for life out in this broad world. Christian discipleship teaches the whole word of God as the foundation for the worldview that we are to live out. It is to equip us for every good work. We are not only to expose the works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11, but, 2 Corinthians 10.4, bringing every thought into captive obedience to Jesus Christ. Every thought, not just thoughts of salvation, but every thought in your cultural endeavors, whatever they may be. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.2. Christians, we must teach and live by all things that Christ has personally taught and by all things that his disciples, whom he commissioned as apostles, taught as well. For in principle, they taught all things that have to do with living life in the real world. Christianity is a whole world and life view. Well, now we're ready for the final all in the Great Commission. Fourth point, the working through all the days. Well, time is running out. I've got to move quickly. I hear the ladies have prepared a good lunch. They're doing this on the basis. Here's the biblical principle. I buffet my body. The Great Commission is truly great. It institutes an immense program. It institutes a program calling for the reconstruction of this fallen world and of human culture to the glory of God.
Christ commands us to disciple all the nations in all things that he has taught. How can such a massive program be accomplished? Well, not overnight. Today, millions believe in the imminent return of Christ. Now, I'll be talking about that in tonight's message. That the world could end at any moment. Hal Lindsey said in 1971, we should live like people who don't expect to be around much longer. Who would undertake a long, difficult task of the Great Commission in restructuring this world to the glory of God with all of the expense involved in that if Christ were going to return in the next few minutes and derail your efforts? Actually, the language of the Great Commission emphasizes the historical long run. Matthew 28, 20, the latter part of that verse. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 20 literally says in the Greek, I will be with you all the days. So there's our fourth all there. And this implies a large number of days. He's not telling his disciples, hang around for a few minutes, I'll be back soon. No, I'm going to be with you through all the days of the expanse of history. Christ provides ample time for this enormous task by mentioning all the days. Well, how extensive is Christ's authority? It's all authority in heaven and on earth. How broad should be our ministry to disciple all cultures? How deeply must we train the cultures of the world in the things of Christ? All things that Christ taught us. And how long of time do we have available? All the days that are necessary to get it done. How can the Great Commission be accomplished with the world and Satan opposed? Well, they're opposed to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a substantial uh, opposition. Christ promised that he is with us all the days with that authority that he has. That's ample assistance for us. And therefore, we must set about seeking the discipling of all the nations and all things he taught. Well, in conclusion, Christians, we must strive to develop a worldview outlook on life. We must strive to develop worldview thinking in our own minds, in our churches, among our friends. We must drive home the holy, uh, excuse me, the holistic nature of Christ's kingdom and the Christian faith. We must understand and live by and promote a biblical theology of life. We must back up this effort with earnest prayer, which is why Christ taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us an immense program from an immensely powerful Savior. Help us, O Lord, to be convinced of the truth of your word and its applicability to all of life to all cultural endeavors at the local and individual level, all the way out to national and worldwide issues. Father, help us to be believers in Christ and to be committed to His work that He's commissioned us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.